Friends, welcome to the program. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com coming to you tonight, as every night, from the sunny climes of Western Japan. And here we are on this uh, 22nd day of February 2012, for me, 21st of February 2012, for most of you, back in the United States, where I am joined on the line for a conversation tonight by Rick Rosoff of Stop NATO International. And as I'm sure everyone in the audience is aware by now, we are in some very, very serious times, and the stakes of what is uh, there on the table uh, for the taking, so to speak, could not be higher. So the existence of Stop NATO is a certainly a welcome one for anyone who has found this great resource at rickrosoff.wordpress.com. I'll just give you some of the highlights of some of the headlines that are up there on the front page right now. Uh, Saakashvili, U.S.-trained Georgian Army to get new combat vehicles after Obama Saakashvili meeting Pentagon official to visit Georgia, over 100 killed in southern Libya clashes, U.S. troops fire at Afghan protesters, Somalia could be next NATO target with leaked document, skewed resolution for Syrian regime change. It just goes on and on and on. The updates come at a fast and heady pace, so I really hope that people are checking rickrosoff.wordpress.com to find out all the latest on the NATO Imperial Army that uh, unfortunately shows no signs of abating or giving any quarter anywhere in the world. So, Rick, it is great to have you on the program tonight. Thank you so much for taking the time. Well, thank you, James, and for the, uh, thanks for the generous words. I only wish, I mean, I welcome the day that Stop NATO can be closed down because there's nothing to report on. But in the meantime, it's the opposite, as you indicate, I'm, I'm afraid. Well, that, that is unfortunately exactly the case. Uh, we, we can't afford to keep our uh, eyes off of this particular ball. There are so many balls in the air, as the listeners out there know, but this one is an extremely important one, as we've seen, of course, with Libya and Syria and uh, all of the uh, the very worrying things that are coming down the line. So we have to keep our eyes on what NATO is doing, and it's, uh, it's an organization that is becoming, or at least seeming to become, more important in recent years, and perhaps we'll get your take on that and how it's really developing. But, uh, but first, uh, it is my honor to introduce you to the radio audience. Uh, for those who have been listening to CorbettReport.com, the, uh, the website, they'll know that I've interviewed you in the past. But for people listening on KHFX 1140 AM right now or listening on RepublicBroadcasting.org, this may be the first time they've ever heard of Rick Rosoff, so why don't you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself. Well, thank you. I'm old enough to recognize the uh, theme song at the beginning of your <laughs> program, James. Uh, it's from the Revolver album in 1966. So, uh, One of the greatest albums of all time. I, I agree with you. Uh, I uh, might say the best Beatles album. It ends with Tomorrow Never Knows, doesn't it? It's and uh, there, there's another uh, song unfor- that uh, you know is maybe more topical than we uh, care to acknowledge. Um I uh, am a native of Youngstown, Ohio. I was born there 59 years ago. I have lived in Chicago for maybe the 35 years, which is relevant because in May, um, as many of your listeners may know, the the, um, North Atlantic Treaty Organization Summit is to be held here. Um, In keeping with that and um, uh, following suit with former NATO summits, they're going to turn 
the United States' third most populous city into a veritable armed camp uh, to demonstrate what NATO brought democracy looks like. Uh, as I've said in, in interviews here locally, uh, the people of Chicago are going to get a taste of what uh, NATO occupation looks like. There was an article, as a matter of fact, about a month ago, James and Crane, Chicago Business, that revealed uh, the federal government, the Obama administration, is deploying, amongst other uh, forces, what they described as um, experienced marksmen uh, to Chicago for the NATO summit, for which read military snipers. And this, uh, they will accompany, of course, the, uh, the regular panoply of AWACS aircraft and helicopter gunships and so forth that, um, you know, are, are deployed for NATO summits. Unfortunately, we're all too familiar with how these uh, these types of summits are treated in this day and age, especially after we've seen the G8 and G20 disgraces in country after country. But on that note, we'll take a short break and we'll come back with uh, with our guest Rick Rosoff of Stop NATO International right after this. Back, friends, you are tuned into Corbett Report Radio here on RepublicBroadcasting.org. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and tonight we're talking to Rick Rosoff of Stop NATO International. You can find that at RickRosoff.wordpress.com, where, as I mentioned, there's just a ton of news updates on all things related to NATO and the, the general panoply of NATO members and their, their military aggression around the world, unfortunately. So once again, it is great to have Rick here on the program to break it all down for us. And just before the break, he was getting into the NATO summit, which is going to be taking place in Chicago uh, very soon, coming up in May, if I'm not mistaken. So, uh, Rick, perhaps you can talk about that summit and its, uh, its importance. Yeah, thank you, James, for the opportunity. Uh, the NATO summit in May, which um, in part overlaps with the Group of Eight with the G8 summit, uh, which incidentally will be the first time that summits for both organizations are held in the United States at the same time, and only the second time that the NATO summit has been held in the United States. Uh, the preceding one was in 1999, which was both momentous and portentous uh, in that it signaled three major um, barriers that the North Atlantic Treaty Organization had crossed, uh, all of them in the post-Cold War period, of course, and those were it uh, it marked this is in 1999 of course it marked the uh, incorporation for the first time of three former members of the Warsaw Pact Treaty Organization Poland the Czech Republic and Hungary it marked as i mentioned the first NATO summit in the United States which was also the 50th year jubilee for the military bloc and it occurred as NATO was waging its full uh, first full-fledged war against a sovereign nation Yugoslavia in the uh, 78-day bombing campaign against that nation, or that former nation, uh, and it, in large part is a former nation precisely because of the NATO onslaught against it. And what we're seeing now is one that is um, equally foreboding, I think, in terms of its implication. It's uh, going to consolidate uh, NATO's adoption of what they term their latest strategic concept, that adopted in November of 2010 at the Lisbon-Portugal NATO summit, it will concretize and expand uh, the development of what is not only a European-wide, but ultimately a global so-called missile shield that is interceptor missile system, what some people refer to uh, as the son of Star Wars. It will also consolidate uh, or uh, build upon what uh, the General Secretary of the Bloc, Anders Fogh Rasmussen, has boasted of being um, NATO 
greatest triumph ever. Uh, the one-sided, uh, definitively asymmetric, uh, you know, destruction of Libya last year, and will no doubt uh, chart out further such uh, military, acts of military adventurism, uh, possibly in Syria, possibly as, as part of an assault against Iran, uh, build-up of ongoing NATO operations in the Gulf of Aden off the coast of Somalia. They have, a, at this point, a permanent mil- a naval presence called Operation, Operation Ocean Shield, what is now the 11th year of Operation Active Endeavor throughout the length and breadth of the Mediterranean Sea, uh, and uh, you know, mil- building military partnerships with nations around the world. I might mention there was a meeting of uh, what are referred to by the acronym CHAD, Chief of Defense Staff, at NATO headquarters in Brussels a few weeks ago, and the, this would include then U.S. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Martin Dempsey, and his equivalents. From NATO and NATO partner countries, James, there were 67 heads of military uh, gathered at that meeting, which is well over a third of the nations in the world. So this gives uh, listeners, you know, some idea of the scope of uh, history's first attempt at a global military bloc. Unfortunately so. And as you mentioned, the uh, having the NATO and G8 summit so close together is unusual. Do you think that this is just a way to get sort of two-for-one security and perhaps to have some of the key members uh, transition from one conference to another easily, or is there some sort of deeper meaning to this? Uh, I don't know about the latter possibility. On the first, I think you're, you're right on target. You know, we have to recall that the current mayor of, uh, of Chicago, one who has in essence purchased the, the position, Rahm Emanuel, came to that, uh, came to his current office from being chief of staff of the Obama administration's White House. So in, in a way, uh, one friend is paying back another, though it's a dubious honor. And, uh, this, uh, two feathers then in Mr. Emanuel's cap, and at the same time, uh, payback in return for whatever Mr. Emanuel did for Mr. Obama. They're both, uh, though not uh, Chicago natives, they're both recent uh, residents of Chicago. A Chicago mayor purchasing his position? I yeah, heaven for uh, This is somebody who made $17 million in three years in LaSalle Street, the financial district in Chicago, with uh, a graduate degree in dance. Yes, that's right. One of the uh, things that people probably don't know about Mr. Emanuel. Uh, yeah, nice way to get a sinecure job at a you know financial firm downtown. Uh, try it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed. Well, uh, well, certainly people can find out more about the uh, the interesting security precautions that's been spread pretty widely, and even mainstream media, even ChicagoBusiness.com picked it up last month. Trained marksmen will be watching NATO G8 dignitaries and protesters. I mean, lots of uh, attention being trained on this, but I think that's also part of the point of this type of security theater operation. And well, wow, look at the uh, fancy new gadgets that we have to roll out against the population. But moving on from that, uh, let's get a sense of what actually occurs at a NATO summit, how it functions, who are some of the key people who are going to be there. Well, I think we have every reason to believe that heads of state of all 28 uh, full NATO members will be there. Uh, foreign secretaries, like our Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, defense secretaries, uh, or their equivalent, um, you know, including uh, Leon Panetta. And then uh, partnership, and we have to, when we talk about NATO partnership programs, we have to recall they include over 20 countries in what's called the Partnership for Peace, which was established in the mid-1990s, and which has been used as a vehicle for the incorporation of uh, 12 new nations in a decade period, from 1999 to 2009. They're all in Eastern Europe, of course. Uh, and that uh, currently, uh, every country in Europe, um, excluding many states like um, 
Monaco and the Vatican and so forth, but accepting those, every single European country, both on the continent and island nations, Britain, um, Ireland, Malta, uh, and Cyprus, except for Cyprus, are full members of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization or engaged in one or more partnership programs. This even includes Russia with the NATO-Russia Council, as problematic as that is at times, uh, which is, uh, when you think about it, um, unparalleled. Uh, never in the wildest imaginings of a Napoleon Bonaparte or an Adolf Hitler was the entire European continent uh, placed under the thumb of one military bloc, one moreover, uh, controlled from the other side of the Atlantic. Now, in addition to that, as I think we've talked about in the past, James, there are uh, part, various partnership programs in North Africa, in the Middle East, in the Persian Gulf, in the South Pacific, in the Far East Asia, and so forth. NATO has a special category of partners called contact countries, and to date, it's going to be expanding, of course. They're Japan, South Korea, Australia, New Zealand. They have a Mediterranean dialogue, which was set up in 1999, I believe, at the uh, Washington Summit of NATO. And those countries include, are, rather, Mauritania, Morocco, Tunisia, Egypt, uh, Jordan, Israel, and Algeria. And there's been talk since the uh, capitulation of the government, the destruction of the government in Libya, openly by the United States and NATO, that Libya will join that program, not surprisingly. And then in 2004, at the uh, Istanbul summit in Turkey, a NATO summit, a special program called the Istanbul Cooperation Initiative was set up to work with the six uh, sheikdoms, emirates, and monarchies in the Persian Gulf. I think it's very telling right now. And, of course, those countries are Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Bahrain, Oman, Qatar, and the United Arab Emirates, and there are more. There's a um, you know tripartite commission with Afghanistan and Pakistan, and there are varying degrees of uh, NATO initiatives. As a matter of fact, a NATO military, military delegation went to China for the first time last week. I did not catch that story. That's incredible. What what was the purpose of that trip? Well, as NATO has uh, pronounced itself, and as uh, you know, the world community and the population of NATO nations has not uh, seriously contested it as being a uh, you know preeminent interventionist force, a security provider would be the euphemism, I imagine, in the world, and no country dare not have uh, you know lines of communication open with NATO. Uh, there's been a pronounced effort uh, by NATO, the U.S. in the first instance, uh, to build military partnerships, a military partnership with India, the world's second most populous country. And not too long ago, uh, U.S. permanent uh, representative ambassador to NATO, Evo Dalder, uh, was quoted uh, pushing India to join the NATO interceptor missile system, which would be an extension of uh, you know the Son of Star Wars, as we talked about earlier, from the Eastern Mediterranean and Baltic and Black Seas uh, through the South Caucasus to India, where it would link up with comparable U.S. missile partnerships with South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, and Australia. So we're talking about a realization uh, in many ways of what was um, referred to in 1983 as the Strategic Defense Initiative, the original Star Wars. Uh, but in this case, with the North Atlantic Treaty Organization forming the basis upon which the bulk of it is being built, we should also recall the recent deployment of a NATO interceptor radar, radar missile site in Turkey, which borders Iran and Syria. You know, it beggars the imagination how this formation and consolidation of this this power, military power block, could be seen as anything other than a fundamental threat to the existence of those who aren't invited into the club, like uh, China and Russia. 
No, by all means. And uh, the, the, ultimately, the three countries that are being um, encircled uh, are, of course, Russia, China, and Iran. Uh, there, there's been talk over the last uh, decade or so about the, develop, the U.S. Air Force developing um, you know, deep, penetrating, super stealthy bombers that can uh, circumvent the air defenses and the radar and so forth of countries to bomb deep inland and so forth. And the only three countries I can imagine that doctrine would pertain to are, of course, Russia, China, and Iran. We also have, you know, as I talked about some of the partnerships, NATO partnerships and NATO military presence. There are uh, German troops in Uzbekistan under NATO auspices. There are French uh, uh, military personnel and until recently warplanes in Tajikistan. And uh, we can get back, I suppose, on that. Absolutely. We'll take a short break, but uh, we'll continue with this fascinating conversation about Stop NATO International right after these messages. talking to Rick Rosoff of Stop NATO International. And, of course, I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. And tonight we've been talking a little bit about the upcoming NATO summit and some of the hot spots around the world where NATO is increasingly making its presence felt. But, uh, but Rick, it occurs to me that, in fact, probably there are a lot of people, like myself, who are largely ignorant about the history of NATO, how it came together as an organization, what its founding mandate was, and how that's, the scope of that mandate has changed and shifted over the years. So perhaps we can take a bit of a historical view of this and start talking about the institution of NATO and how it really came together. Right. The North Atlantic Treaty Organization is at best uh, a Cold War relic that has been refashioned for the post-Cold War period. It was founded in 1949. Its founding document is called the North Atlantic um, um, I'm sorry, it's, it's uh, the Washington Treaty or the North Atlantic Treaty. Uh, the North Atlantic Treaty, I think, is its formal designation. And um, to trust its own account, it was to uh, keep Europe militarized uh, ostensibly to uh, d- defend southern and western Europe from an imminent Soviet onslaught, which, of course, was n- not a possibility at that time. Your listeners know how severely devastated, almost fatally devastated, the former Soviet Union had been by 1945 at the end of World War II, and the prospect of it launching a full-fledged war against several uh, American army stations in Europe was, was, of course, ludicrous. But uh, the, you know, the common, um, almost jocular, uh, explanation of American strategy in forming NATO was to keep America in, Germany down, and Russia out uh, of Europe. And uh, it's achieved one of those two things, uh, one of those three things, rather. It's kept America in, and it's kept as many as 240 um, B-61 tactical nuclear bombs on air bases in five NATO countries, including Turkey, which, again, borders both Syria and Iran. And uh, even though uh, current Defense Secretary Leon Panetta has announced the withdrawal of more American ground troops from Europe, which is to be expected, he no longer needs them there. Uh, The pivot towards the Asia-Pacific region, as the White House and the Pentagon have announced, and a uh, concomitant buildup in the Middle East, uh, with, as we talked about a few moments ago, with Europe already uh, subjugated under the NATO uh, banner, there 
there's really no not much need to keep ground forces in on the European continent right now. So that what happened with the uh, fragmentation and the end of the Soviet Union in 1991 is rather than folding uh, folding up their tent, closing shop, as the, you know by rights they should, it ought to have done. Uh, NATO simply decided to expand throughout the former um, Eastern Bloc, uh, throughout the former Soviet Union. All 15 former Federal Republics of the Soviet Union, now independent nations, are either, in the case of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, full members of NATO. In the case of the other 12 members of the Partnership for Peace program, uh, Russia did withdraw from that program in 1999 um, when NATO launched the war against Yugoslavia, but as we talked about a moment ago, is still a member of a bilateral NATO-Russia council. So that, uh, to such a degree, as a matter of fact, that George W. Bush a few years ago at one point of uh, uncontrollable triumphalism, I suppose, stated that the Warsaw Pact is now NATO, and indeed it is. Uh, every former Warsaw Pact country except for uh, 12 of the 15 former Soviet federal republics is now a full member of NATO. And it's then expanded its horizon, or its battlefront, uh, way beyond Europe, certainly way beyond the North Atlantic Ocean area, by having, as of last year, with the uh, seven-month war against Libya, now uh, wage full-fledged war on three continents, that is, southeastern Europe, North Africa, and South Asia, with more to come, I fear. Yes, indeed. Well, those are some startling uh, facts about the organization. Is NATO an, an institution that is shaped by personalities? Does it really behoove people to look into the history of Paul Henry Spock and uh, Willie Cleese and Lord Robertson and some of the other former secretary generals, or is that just sort of trappings in this type of organization? I mean, that's a, that's a fascinating point you raise. You know, at the very least, um, the aristocratic and uh, elite transatlantic or Euro-Atlantic uh, types uh, who have dominated NATO both as secretary generals and in other capacities uh, is certainly something worth looking at because it uh, suggests, contrary to how they portray themselves as an alliance of democratic nations in the North Atlantic and so forth, that what we're seeing is a um, an effort to maintain the influence of major Western nations, uh, European as, as, uh, as well as the United States and Canada, uh, in a world where Outnumbered, I believe the combined population of all NATO nations is somewhere in the neighborhood of 900 million. So it's, um, you know, maybe one eighth, a little more than one eighth the total population of the world. But you wouldn't know that by the way they appropriate terms like international community and so forth to describe their actions. And what we're, what we're looking at, you know, and basically with NATO, this is completely an unelected, unaccountable organization. Uh, nobody in the United Nations ever voted uh, to proclaim NATO the world's sole military uh, bloc or to permit it uh, to wage wars as it has. It's you know, misused U.N. resolutions, as in the case of Libya with U.N. Security Council Resolution 1973 last year and earlier resolutions uh, in relation to Afghanistan. It, of course, um, you know, bombarded uh, Yugoslavia for 78 days without even the pretense of UN authorization. But we're looking at a, a block of elite countries that we can talk about more. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed we can. Okay, yes, the music means we will be going to break. So once again, we're talking to Rick Rosoff. And once again, I will recommend people out there who have not checked out rickrosoff.wordpress.com do so, and preferably do so on a, on a daily basis or subscribe to the RSS feed, because as I say, so much information coming out of there. But let's take a short break, and we'll come back right after these messages. 
You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. tuned into Corbett Report Radio here on Republic Broadcasting. My name is James Corbett from CorbettReport.com. Tonight we're talking to Rick Rosoff of Stop NATO International at RickRosoff.wordpress.com. And Rick, before the break, I was asking about the uh, the history of the organization and whether certain individuals or, or, or people have really shaped it as an institution, because it, it occurred to me, I was actually doing some research in preparation for tonight's uh, conversation, and for the first time, I really took a look, list, a look at the list of past NATO secretary generals and was pr- surprised somewhat to find people like Paul Henry Spock, who was a, a Belgian, who is known as one of the fathers of the European Union, and was, of course, also a member of the Bilderberg Group. And I think there was a market connection between those activities. And I was, I was, I guess I shouldn't have been surprised to see him as a former Secretary General of uh, NATO, but, but it is uh, somewhat interesting. So I'm wondering if that, uh, if the European Union has had some, something of a similar uh, growth and progression to NATO, of whether those institutions have been intertwined at a more fundamental level. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, we're talking about a continental system, to, to use Napoleon Bonaparte's statement, or, uh, uh, description of, uh, you know, what he enforced through military means. And we've had uh, occasion to allude already to the subsequent attempt to create such a thing that under the Axis powers, uh, the Third Reich in the first instance. And what we see now is uh, a European Union that is increasingly merged with, certainly in terms of its military capability, but also foreign policy-wise in general, uh, with the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. There's actually something called the Berlin Plus Agreement between the European Union and NATO. It goes back uh, quite a period of time to the 1990s, which uh, permits the sharing of military assets, commanders, uh, bases, and so forth uh, between uh, the European Union and NATO. They oftentimes run in tandem with each other. For example, the European Union is, for a couple of years now, has been waging its first ever, again, more or less permanent, naval operation in the Gulf of Aden, Operation Atalanta, in conjunction with NATO's Operation Ocean Shield. Um, there are, you know, increased pushes, particularly now with the economic crisis in Europe and what NATO refers to as smart defense, um, to uh, further integrate European Union, including their uh, battle groups and, and so forth, with NATO. Uh, this is really; uh, these are really rather two bureaus of the same department, and there's there's no essential difference. Uh, the only country in the European Union that's not a NATO member is uh, or NATO partner is Cyprus. Uh, but the pressure has been put since the beginning of last year to with the combination of well orchestrated. A combination of all opposition parties in the island nation to unify and demand that Cyprus joins the Partnership for Peace program, again, an apprenticeship program, if you will, uh, aimed towards full NATO membership. So the, uh, when, when one talks about foreign policy in general, military activities in particular, the distinction between NATO and the European Union is virtually non-existent. There's a nice sleight of hand that is done for public relations purposes to try to portray the European Union is a democratic collective. <laughs> you know, tell that to the Greeks and Italians. And, uh, you know, NATO is the unfortunate armed enforcer that has to be relied upon on occasion. And both of them have been portrayed uh, in the United States as well as Europe as a you know, alleged multilateral alternative. 
alternative to occasional American unilateralism. These are all red herrings. Uh, indeed, there's no fundamental difference between uh, the United States, European Union, and NATO when it comes to foreign policy and military policy. If one wanted uh, proof of that, uh, watch the next time the President of Iran addresses the General Assembly at the United Nations, and which uh, uh, 28 countries' uh, representatives get up in, in unison and walk out. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. And I, I, I think you're right to point that out. I mean, whatever the founding vision of the, the original NATO um, signatories might have been, I'm sure that it couldn't have played out any better for those who had the vested interest in drawing Europe and, and America into this type of alliance. And, and uh, now, as you say, it's spreading around the globe uh, precipitously and basically everywhere there's a strategic interest. But just along those lines, before we get off that train of thought, uh, the current uh, Secretary General, of course, Anders Rasmussen, the former uh, Prime Minister of Denmark. Is there anything interesting that we should know about him as a character on this uh, stage? Yeah, he was a personal advocate for deploying Danish troops to Iraq after the invasion in 2003. He has supported in various capacities every uh, NATO operation and even non-NATO operation. Incidentally, there is also a misconception about NATO's role in the invasion and occupation of Iraq, which is um, you know, another uh, false clue thrown out to people, another distraction. Uh, immediately before the, the attack in March of 2003, uh, the NATO Military Committee and, and their general military structure uh, bypassed France at that time, which was still outside the military command structure after de Gaulle withdrew it from, from there in the 60s and ousted NATO headquarters in Paris. Uh, in early 19, uh, 2009, uh, Nicolas Sarkozy, of course, brought France, reintegrated France into the military command structure of NATO. But uh, it went to a, a discussion, went to a committee, NATO military committee, in early 2003, and the North Atlantic Treaty Organization authorized the deployment of AWACS aircraft and Patriot interceptor missiles to Turkey in preparation for the war, so they fully supported the war. And then afterwards, uh, you know, the, the bulk of NATO countries, and this is with the exception of Belgium, uh, Germany, France, and Canada, uh, and Luxembourg, um, you know, did not send troops, but every other NATO country did. And in, uh, even, or perhaps not Iceland, but uh, what was even more revealing were new NATO members of that time, which is to say the three countries that had joined in, in uh, 1999 sent troops, and the uh, nine countries that would join in uh, 2004 and 2009 all sent troops. And almost precisely at the same time, they were withdrawn from Iraq and redeployed to Afghanistan, so they followed the NATO trajectory. And there was, until very recently, a NATO training mission in Iraq, which uh, trained thousands, if not tens of thousands, of uh, the upper... Uh, a rung of the Iraqi um, officer corps, other uh, soldiers, and uh, even something referred to as oil police. So uh, wherever the U.S. enters, NATO is not far behind. And, and uh, conversely, wherever NATO enters, the U.S. is dragged into it, as in Libya last year. We do have to recall that the U.S. Congress um, insisted on President Obama appearing before them after the 60 days mandated by the War Powers Resolution of the War Power Resolution 1973 uh, with imperial uh, contempt and disdain. Of course, he refused to do that and, uh, you know, effectively buried the War Power Resolution. He effectively killed it. So it's a precarious situation where if one or more major NATO members, and they usually refer James as, uh, to as either the NATO Quint, the United States, France, Germany, uh, Italy, and 
Britain, or more often the NATO Quad, which is the United States, Germany, France, and Britain. Uh, if two or more members of that group decide on a war, you can generally count on all the NATO countries going along uh, willy-nilly. Absolutely, and as you lay out there in quite quite uh, remarkable detail, certainly the full picture of NATO's involvement in Iraq has definitely not been conveyed to the public at large, and I think for uh, for good reason for NATO PR purposes. But uh, that I think brings us to what has to be considered the the prima fa- not prima facie the the absolute hot spot right now, the the place where I think so much of this is is centered at the moment. And that, of course, is Syria. And we've seen a lot of the very same things that happened in the lead up to Libya, unfortunately, taking place in Syria, seemingly without uh, without much of a change in, in cast or characters or uh, plot or any of the uh, elements of this script. And, uh, and of course, the latest uh, drama re- revolving around that UN Secretary- uh, Security Council resolution that was vetoed by China and Russia this time, as opposed to the Libyan 1973 resolution. So perhaps it's playing out slightly differently. But what's your take on the Syria developments and where you think this is headed? I agree with you wholeheartedly. Uh, change a few proper names and toponyms, and you have not only Libya last year, but you have Kosovo 1999, which is to say an armed rebel group, um, surprisingly well-armed in many instances. One does question where they get their arms and their training. Uh, is uh, I'm not saying that's the entirety of what's going on inside Syria, of course, but it is a major factor. Uh, there was an article just today that suggested there were uh, 10,000 Libyan fighters being trained inside Jordan for penetration inside Syria. We do know that NATO member, NATO stalwart, and uh, that NATO contributor, which next to the United States uh, can offer the most troops of any, of any member of the alliance, Turkey, is harboring uh, the so-called Free Syrian Army. And I've seen estimates of up to 15,000 troops. Um, I don't know how many of them are really Syrian, but uh, up to uh, 15,000 troops uh, being harbored, no doubt trained in Turkey. Uh, and when you talk about 25,000 or more troops in two adjoining countries, you're talking about a sizable invasion force. This is far more than any Libyan rebel group had last year or that the so-called Kosovo Liberation Army had in 1998 or 1999. Um, so what we're looking at again is, and of course there's a slightly new model that was uh, begun last year in the African continent, first with Ivory Coast and then with Libya, which is invoking the so-called responsibility to protect doctrine adopted formally by the United Nations and the, and the prompting of the U.S. and its NATO allies, uh, which permits formally, uh, it's been done practically, but formally, the um, uh, circumvention or the uh, overriding of uh, the United Nations Charter, the stipulations about the sovereignty of nations and so forth, and permits those countries with the military power to do so, which is a NATO. Uh, to intervene militarily in any country where they deem uh, that human rights violations have grown so severe that only a military resolution uh, you know, can resolve them and so forth. So this is an open-ended, um, self-granted uh, right for you know indefinite military intervention in most any place. This is, I mean, this is really the frightening aspect of it. And as you alluded to, James, there's a sense in which all of this has been allowed to progress over the last 20 years with an accelerating velocity. Um, with uh, most of the world uh, either being blissfully unaware of what's going on or when it's brought to their attention, uh, to the people's attention, they look at it as though it's bad taste to raise these sorts of issues. And uh, perhaps if you ignore, ignore them, they'll go away or something. They're not going away. 
And the fact that, you know, you're in a different time zone than me, I can wake up tomorrow and find out and read that uh, Tomahawk cruise missiles have been fired uh, from the Mediterranean into Syria. I, we can both, uh, you know, pick, uh, turn on the computer in an hour and find out military strikes have been launched in Iran. And this is the uh, the climate that we're living in, you know, the political, the psychological, the moral climate we're living in. It's, it's intolerable. It certainly that, is, but that of course begs the question of why more people don't aren't finding it intolerable. Why are people's uh, generally speaking the reaction to simply tune this information out or to to act like it's not happening? You know, I hate to, I don't mean to belittle this in any way, but I uh, took the uh, couple of the L trains downtown two weeks ago to um, to, to my work. And uh, I couldn't, I was struck just uh, in a few months hiatus of, you know, taking the train. Almost everyone I saw on the, on the platforms and on the train had their iPods in, uh, were rubbing their thumbs up and down their smartphones, uh, so thoroughly self-absorbed that I swear if they had announced a fire on the train, I think 90% of the people would not have been aware of it. Uh, there was no social interaction between people. Everyone was, you know, rather self-contained, and a conductor on the train uh, who I suppose is as bored with his job as many of us are with ours, uh, was entertaining us on the way by, you know, voiceovers and all that. And when we got right to, to the loop, to the downtown area in Chicago, says, now remember to uh, take your, your iPhones, your iPads, your iPods, and all your other toys, which I, I thought was an apt comment. <laughs> but I, 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 I'm not suggesting that is the source of the problem, but I think it's reflective of it. And I think where there's no social space, where there's no political discourse, where people are, uh, you know, live in a very circumscribed world, where uh, allusions to broader development, something that, you know, my father or grandfather would have been avidly following in the newspapers, is something that is not as interesting as text messaging somebody you met yesterday, then in part this, this accounts for the political autism. <laughs> You know that exist with uh, vast masses of people in the world right now. People and your radio station plays, uh, you know, uh, an indispensable role in shaking people out of that complacency. Well, what a what a great term, political autism, because that really does seem to describe it. People do seem to be living in in sort of their own wor- world, and as you say, they're so cocooned in their various technologies that it's kind of the conundrum that we are more connected with people than we ever have been in our lives, and yet we are less connected with any real individual human beings on a one to one basis. And that well, you, does you put that perfectly, a, but you know, I, I've said for years, and I'm reminded of a statement by the German philosopher Schopenhauer. Uh, actually quoting a German theologian, uh, Liefenberg, uh, about books, but I'll, I'll say this in reference to the computer, to the World Wide Web. And uh, Liefenberg said, uh, a book is like a mirror. If a jackass looks in, you can't expect a saint to look out. And it is the greatest irony of the 21st century that connected as we all potentially are with news sources around the world, which obligingly enough are in English. You know, I don't know of a country in the world, a major country at any rate, that doesn't have English language uh, uh, news sites. That uh, were, you know, what many of us uh, in not too long ago, maybe a decade or two, a couple of decades ago, would have had to gone to a good university library, borrowing somebody's card, and spent a whole day in the reference section looking up information. We have it at our fingertips right now, and I don't. But we're seeing just the reverse of what you might expect. That rather than people. Knowing history, geography, contemporary political and economic developments uh, commensurate with that access to information, we're seeing in many cases people uh, retreating into the the cocoon you mentioned. So, you know, in a sense, we have a uh, politically disenfranchised but also a politically AWOL 
population to, to a large extent, and that is permitted, you know, a good deal of what's gone on over the past 20 years to occur. Well, perhaps what we're seeing really is just the taking to extremes of the, the inbuilt tendencies that we've seen in, in probably every society throughout history, which is there's a small percentage of people who are actively involved in these things. And that small percentage is becoming, as you say, just uh, so much more informed about things that are taking place all around the world as, as is so easy to do these days. But the, uh, the percentage of the population, the, I think, would imagine quite a bit larger percentage uh, who have no interest in this at all have more and more ways to distract themselves and they don't really have to relate at all to uh, to the world around them if they don't want to. So it, it really just increases the tendencies that we've always seen in society. No, you're correct, uh, of course. Though I think, you know, we're alluding to the Beatles revolver album in 1966. At the time it was released, the Vietnam War was, was raging. It was in, in earnest, you know, probably that year more than any other. And uh, But it was very difficult to find an American adult, or a teenager for that matter, who didn't have a very decided opinion on the Vietnam War, one way or the other. It was front-page news. People paid attention to it. People's lives were affected, maybe because so many, uh, not so many people's lives are directly affected by these military uh, adventures abroad right now that uh, you know, there's a corresponding lack of interest in them. Um, but the, the fact that the, the World Wide Web, and I keep, uh, you know, underlining the, the global nature of it is such that one would expect any decent citizen of the world uh, to keep abreast of developments and to learn to read through uh, what are, you know, more often than not crude propaganda text and mm-hmm. so forth, that there'd be some cumulative progress. And well, being able indeed. to, in assess. fact, yes, as you point out, I think media literacy becomes so much more important as we start to to experience all of this various media constantly and from all parts of the world. But unfortunately, it seems that people are slipping more into the uh, the purview of that propaganda. But on that note, we will have to take another short break, and we will be back in just a few minutes to wrap things up with Rick Rosoff of Stop NATO International. Welcome back to the broadcast, friends. We are back on Corbett Report Radio in the closing minutes of tonight's broadcast. And if you're just joining us, we've been talking to Rick Rosoff of Stop NATO International at rickrosoff.wordpress.com. And just in the final few minutes here, we have a caller on the line. We have John from Canada. So, John, I understand you have some points to make. Yeah, awesome. Thanks so much for taking my call. I just love this show. Uh, I like to think, though, that uh, although NATO is a serious threat to uh, our continual livelihoods here, they are actually in an extremely weak position. Uh, you know, like like uh, your guest was saying, you know, they'll say, well, it's a human rights violation that's occurring, and we have to intervene, and it's understanding how they take the authority of the collective we, and as your, you know, your wonderful guest has said, you know, they don't even represent the international community either, but the thing is, is they use that as a tool, and yet they lie about it. So it's only in communicating to the soldier that they're dying needlessly that we all defeat NATO and put them on trial for the crimes they're for sure guilty of. I mean, Gaddafi, as uh, Russia told us, they had aerial surveillance by satellite over all of Libya and just outright came out and said Obama and Hillary are lying to us because there is no uh, threat uh, against the civilian population. And Gaddafi himself said uh 
you know, uh, the, one of the big laws in this nation was that if any soldier attacks a civilian populace, they are, are to be immediately executed, including himself under that provision. But yet the media lied to us about that. And they said, he said, kill all those people like rats. And yet we know we can defeat them if the truth prevails on these issues because they've got nowhere to stand. You know, even when they do their strikes against innocent, defenseless souls on the ground, like they have repeatedly in one case where children were around a jeep, after the surviving children were screaming for help because their limbs had been blown off, families uh, in the area would rush to their aid. And NATO says it's, you know, they're perfectly valid in hitting all the people who try to save the lives of these only innocent people around a exactly. tank or two. I mean, so they've re- routinely told us they are war criminals, and they lie to the naive soldier to sacrifice their lives needlessly because, like you say, too, Saddam isn't in violation of 1441. We're sacrificing soldiers' lives needlessly because we have unrestricted access. What do you want Saddam to do that he isn't complying with immediately because that's what he's doing? And he's also saying right. we can have his TV and radio, but Bush says, no, we don't want that. Then he offers exactly. his himself. Well, we a great point, John. Absolutely. I think that is the Achilles heel because it, they do function by uh, relying on our tacit compliance and acceptance with their their more and more brazen attempts to dominate the world. Rick, your thoughts on that? I want to thank John. All his insights are keen. Um, and, and in fact, you know, the seven month seven month long uh, you know bombing campaign against Libya last year was one where I can tell you here in the United States there's precious little enthusiasm, you know, if any. Uh, aside from the prof- um, professional political class, which is always waging, uh, willing to wage war for any purpose or none whatsoever, but uh, had it uh, uh, become a more serious conflict, say expanding regionally or involving other parties and so forth, um, there would have been no consensus here in the United States. I, I, there may have been a little bit more in Europe, uh, sadly. And I think the ability to, and we have to keep in mind too, that uh, under the auspices of NATO, under the International Security Assistance Force in Afghanistan, the U.S. is well into its 11th year in the war in Afghanistan. That's, of course, the longest war in, our, in the, my country's history. You know, it's longer than the active combat uh, period in Vietnam. And uh, I think there's a certain law of diminished returns in terms of how much loyalty or how much blood and treasure you can expect from, uh, from your populace. Unfortunately, they, they've developed into such a high-tech, one-sided, uh, in the real sense of the word, asymmetric uh, war-fighting machine, that if you're launching, uh, you know, d- um, drone, uh, uh, hellfire missiles and cruise missiles and special forces on the ground, you don't need much popular support. So, uh, but I do agree that if both in and out of uniform, if the citizens of NATO countries stand up and say enough and, and no more, uh, that's the only way of bringing this to an end. Well, on that note, I, I, we're fresh out of time, but we'll have to encourage people to check out Stop NATO International in the hopes that NATO can indeed be stopped. So once again, Rick Rosoff and John and all of you out there, thank you so much for your time. I'm looking forward to talking to you again tomorrow night. Thank you, Jim.